Hey folks, you're listening to How to Win a Campaign, where you'll get an insider's perspective that teaches you not only how to win campaigns, but also how to build movements. I'm Joe Fold. And I'm Martin Diego Garcia, and you can find us at the Campaign Workshop on Instagram and now on Threads. Welcome and thanks for listening to this week's episode of How to Win a Campaign Season 4. All right, Martin, if you haven't already, you know, listen to this great season on movement building, be sure to check out previous episodes. Oh, I've listened to it. I think our other listeners need to listen to every episode. We'll work on that. <laughs> well, as we all know, right, money makes the world go round. And in this episode today, we're going to be discussing movement building through fundraising with advice about how do you really effectively think about utilizing coalitions and avoiding mistakes and using fundraising as a tool to create capacity, build movements, right? Get the resources you need to do the work you're doing. All right, Martine, this is a great topic and nothing can happen without fundraising. So tell us your top fundraising tips. What do you got? For most folks, the talking about money and particularly asking about money <laughs> feels a little taboo, right? Depending on sort of how you were raised, the culture you come from, right? Like money is a topic some folks don't talk about. So I think first and foremost, it's really demystifying this idea about how do you fundraise and asking folks for money, right? And I think we often, when we train, try and get folks to reframe the way that they think about fundraising as not asking somebody to, to sort of solely give you their hard-earned money, right? But really as thinking about it as an opportunity for them to engage in however they can engage, right? Sometimes a person doesn't have the time to go knock on doors or, or show up to a protest or, or come to an event. But something that they can do to sort of make the world a better place is give money, right? And so as you are utilizing fundraising for movement building, I want you to remember, right? Like this is an opportunity you are giving this person in order to engage in the way that they can engage. And sometimes that's with money. So remember, as you're asking for donations, you want to ask for a very specific amount, right? We don't want to leave money on the table as we're thinking about the amount of money we think they can give us, right? You don't want to just say, hey, Joe, do you mind supporting this? And would you mind making a donation? Well, Martine, whatever you call me for, I'm going to make a donation. So realize <laughs> that. But yes, that idea of like, as we talk about reason, amount and time, right? The reason why you're asking for money, the amount you're asking for and when you need the check by is really important to put into an ask. But it is also that relationship. You're going to have friends like Martine who, when they call you and ask you for money, you're going to say, hey, what do you need me to write? I'm happy to do it. I don't have that many friends in my life, but I've got a couple. <laughs> oh, I appreciate that I have one of them. But the other piece is instead of me telling Joe, hey, give whatever you can. And Joe's like, cool, here's $25. When I know Joe could probably give a little bit more than $25, right? Like I want to make sure that I'm making an ask of Joe that is reasonable, but also make sure that I'm, I am getting Joe to commit to the level that I think he can commit to, right? So that you as an organization or you as a movement, right, are actively getting the resources that you need. I think the other thing that Joe just touched on, right, is really relationships. And fundraising can be a really great way that you list build, right, that you build out your network of community of people who are interested in this topic and engaged in the movement work that you were doing, that expands your reach and your impact, right? And so the more that you can continue to work beyond and beyond and beyond, right, the initial folks that you're raising money for, the more folks that are going to be involved and the more folks that are going to have skin in the game. 
But what I'll say is that personal relationship that you have, if you're willing to get on the phone or invite people to your house to have cookies, whatever it is, for an event, right, for an issue that you care about, people are going to give. If they know that you're giving, then they're willing to give because you have made that commitment, that connection. And that idea in the digital landscape, sometimes we do these matches, right, where we say, you know, you get an email saying, if you give, this money is going to get matched. That is based on sort of a personal fundraising technique, where if you call somebody up and you say, hey, Martine, I'm giving $250 to this AIDS walk that I'm doing, will you give me $250? You're going to get a better engagement because it's an issue I care about and because I care about it. I'm putting my money there. Martine may do that, not just because he cares about the issue, but because I've taken action as well. There are a number of different sort of ways in which groups, organizations, movements, right, interact with money. There's grant writing, there's individual fundraising with small dollar donors, large dollar donors. There's the philanthropy groups of these, right, like really wealthy humans who give a lot of money to movements and organizations. What are things that folks in the movement space should be considering, thinking about as it pertains to, right, like the relationship building you've been talking about? the tactics we we think about, how should they be incorporating or thinking about these different streams of revenue? The first thing that I'll say is think about the goal of your organization and the money that you're trying to get and why you're trying to get it. And don't just chase money because it exists. Chase money because it is aligned with the work that you're doing, right? A donor, whoever it is, whether it's me, your friend, or whether it's a philanthropic organization, or a, a local grant-making organization, whatever it is, make sure it is aligned. If it's not aligned, you're not likely to get that money and you don't want to chase money just for the sake of chasing money and change your mission. You want to get money because it fits with what you're doing and it's funding the projects and the mission that are in alignment with what you're really trying to do. And by the way, this is a mistake that groups make all the time around growth is the they almost change their movement because they're looking for the money first versus the mission first. So think about the mission. And if you have a clear mission, if you have a clear message, I really do believe that the money will come don't just chase the money. So that's the first thing. The second thing is understand that individual donations are usually the hardest to get and they are the ones that stay with you the longest. So I would always say start with those individual donations. I would say, listen, foundation funding, other kinds of funding can come for a movement. And I'm not saying go away from that. But if you have a donor base that first starts out with 15 $25, then $100 contributions or $500 contributions, and you're continuing to communicate with those folks, that is a really great base. And then getting larger donations on top of that, that's fine. But you want to make sure you're continuing to grow that small to medium dollar donor base over time and stay with it. Because I will just say, sometimes foundation dollars are fickle. They're not going to stay with you forever. But yeah. individual donors can. To your point of like the goal of the organization and understanding like what your structure needs, right? Like, are you a sort of organization that is coalescing a bunch of different organizations, right? Like, are you playing the sort of glue and there's a staff of three people 
you're not going to have a lot of overhead. You could get a handful of large donors or one grant or a couple of grants, right? That, that helps support the work that you're doing and coalescing these other folks versus you're an organization that's going to be building up to 150 staff members, right? Like you were going to have a lot more overhead and a lot more resources that you're going to need in order to make the impact and have the capacity to do the work that you need to do. And so I think really understanding at the onset is, okay, in this movement space that I am joining, are there grants that I can apply for? Are there large dollar donors I should be making relationships with? Or do I need to show that we have broad support in the community, in the state, in the nation, globally, whatever, right? Where a lot of individuals are giving donations to this cause. Thinking about the commercials you see for St. Jude's, right? For ASPCA, it is a movement that those folks have built over time again and again and again and are continuously building that momentum through fundraising, right? It, it is a way that they are appealing to us emotionally of why we can support each other, support our communities, support our, our four-legged and winged friends. And it's a really emotional appeal that they make in order to continue to get the resources they need to make the impact in the world. And the message for their movement is very clear, even when they're raising money. So they're using that to grow their movement. You know, whether you give money or not, they're using that as a megaphone to get their message out there. That is really important. I wish that we all had the resources of like St. Jude's or the ASPCA. We may not. So it is making sure then that even if it's emails that you're sending out or phone calls that you're making, that your message is clear and that that work is happening, that communication is happening. I think the mistake that people make is like, hey, we've had this organization. It's been operating for 10 years, we can stop engaging or stop communicating because the money will just come in. It doesn't work that way. You have to keep that message out there. You have to keep talking to folks. You have to keep talking to donors and you have to explain the why behind it. There's so much competition for dollars these days, whether that is a foundation or whether that's an individual, and that you have to really define that why and continue to explain why we need the money. And understanding the landscape of the other folks who are going after that similar money, right? And I think not to put us in a scarcity mindset, but you having a better understanding of, okay, these are the types of organizations that go after these grants. These are the types of organizations that this major donor gives to. Understanding who else is in the space is going to help you have a better and clearer understanding of, okay, which ones then make the most sense for us? And that I can make that appeal that Joe is mentioning about the why that distinguishes us, that shows the importance of the the impact and the work that we specifically are doing that needs to be funded. Joe, can you talk a little bit about the importance of the diversity and revenue as you're building an organization for the like sustainability and like long term goal setting? You want a variety of donors. You want different kinds. Listen, you'd love to have some grants. You would love to have people who are doing monthly giving. But the way that your organization is going to continue to grow over time is bringing new people in. So whether that's your board doing events, engaging people, whether it's getting individuals. Technology is a great thing that you can even have like individual fundraising pages on a website that allows people 
people to take on a fundraising goal. And that's a way for you to bring in new people to an organization. If I, you know, really just started working on this cause and I've said, you know what, this year I'm going to make it a personal mission to raise $2,000 for this cause and I get new friends involved, not only do those $25 or $50 contributions for those individuals make a difference, but then the organization is going to come back to them. They're going to do resolicitation and those people then may hold their own event. They may engage. So it's that idea of continuing to grow the list, knowing that like a foundation this year, your issue may be their priority, but two years from now, they may be onto something else. Or an individual, I might have done an event for this this year, but now I'm thinking about something else. But if you're continuing to grow that list, continuing to grow those different types of donors and continuing to grow those connections, you're not going to be left behind because you're able to continue to reach out to new pools of donors. But it takes a lot of focus. It's got to be somebody's job to be doing the follow-up and the resolicitation and engaging, it doesn't happen on its own. The last two tips I'll leave right there are the last ones you just hit on, right? Is the sort of follow-up and the thank yous. Even if you just got a meeting with the grant writer, right? Like even if you just got a meeting with that big donor and you didn't actually get the grant or you didn't actually get the donation, right? You want to continue to build that relationship through follow-up. One, you want to thank them. Always thank them for their time because you never know if you're going to be able to go back to them in the future and ask for a different pot of money, right? And so you now having a foot in the door with those particular donors and following up with them about the work that you're doing, the impacts you're making, right? Continuing to keep them be on their radar of the momentum you're building is only going to make your pitch easier the next time you come around to that person, right? And so ensuring that you were doing those little things to maintain the relationship, to keep it cordial, to thank them for their time. They may seem really small, right? But they're the things that actually get you better odds the next time you go back to them for money. Joe, any last tips? Listen, this is a great interview. Martine, so glad you did it. Can't wait to hear more about it. And looking forward to hearing more after the break. Absolutely. So we're really excited. We got to talk to today's guest, Matt Singer, who spent years consulting on organizations in the fundraising space. So stay tuned as we dig in deeper on the topic and we'll be right back. And we're back. Today's guest is Matt Singer. Matt is a partner at Impactual and offers strategic and philanthropic consulting with a focus on civic engagement, voting access and culture. Impactual is a woman-owned business of strategists, organizers, and creatives aiming to improve civil society in the U.S. Prior to joining Impactful, Matt actually founded and led Forward Montana and Alliance for Youth Actions, both organizations that build the political power of young people while advancing policies of voting rights, immigration justice, LGBTQ equality, health care, housing access, and work to combat climate change. After the 2008 election, Matt actually founded the National Voter Registration Day, which is a nonpartisan civic holiday that really helps to ensure every voter can participate in the voting process. Throughout his career, Matt has been at the forefront of advocacy and infrastructure management in the social impact and policy space. So we have a ton to learn from Matt today, and I'm so excited for you to be on the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. So we usually start off all of these with a how did you get here kind of question. You obviously have had quite a career in both the advocacy and the policy space. Can you elaborate a little bit on how you got to your career and how you ended up where you are today? Yeah, yeah. My journey starts with what I recommend everyone do. I dropped out of college uh, at the age of 19 and ended up 
volunteering to help with a community picnic for the Montana Conservation Voters because uh, working as a graveyard line cook at a Perkins was not a, a satisfying way to spend my summer. They offered me a job that fall. This was 2002, 20 years ago, as an organizer in Missoula uh, across the state from where I grew up. I, I jumped at the opportunity, uh, got to work with members and volunteers and our chapter in Missoula endorsing folks. And, and took that experience and built on it over the next couple of years with a mix of jobs and organizing and politics, internships, volunteering opportunities. And in that process, kept finding mentors and the media and other people in politics had this drumbeat towards my friends and me, which was, and, and just to the country as a whole, of young people don't matter in the political system. They don't vote. They don't have a voice. And in some cases, even they're not well enough informed, they shouldn't have a voice. And we were all young people and we said, we don't like this. So we started an organization called Forward Montana to give our generation a voice in local politics. We ran one of our founding members for a swing state house seat. He won a competitive primary and a general. We ran the first uh, successful confirmation fight in 20 years in our state, um, remaking the state board of higher education into a pro-student majority got some bills passed. And a couple of years later, as we learned how to raise money, I became that organization's first executive director, uh, found similar organizations doing similar work in a couple of states nearby, uh, what was then called the Bus Project in Oregon, New Era, Colorado. Started working with them um, to found what is has now become the Alliance for Youth Action. In 2010, I moved over to Portland, Oregon and became that organization's first executive director which is where we launched National Voter Registration Day, where we wrote and passed the nation's first automatic voter registration bill and got to work with all sorts of different organizations around the country. And I, and I think a couple things about that process really helped give me skills and perspectives that are valuable today. First, working with startup organizations, I just learned so much about things that can go wrong inside a startup, um, how you can help correct on that when you're an inner circle part of the team, how you can help correct that when you're an outsider who's helping advise money or giving strategic advice, and also what you can't do, what you shouldn't try to do because you can only make some problems worse sometimes from pushing from the outside. Secondly, working with young people. Young people are such a gift to our political system because they don't have the same definitions of possible and impossible as those of us. You know, the, the wisdom of experience can also sometimes become the quick to say no. And, and I saw people do things that I didn't think was possible and saw it so many times and just loved being able to support that work, even sometimes when I, when I wasn't sold on it from the beginning. And then finally, getting to work in this federated structure. So even though I grew up in Montana, Montana is an unusual place. It's small. It's very rural. Uh, it's very homogenous, large American Indian population. But otherwise, it's a, it's a very white state. Um, but I always believed in the power of myself and our community. And I always wanted other people to have that power as well. And so getting to work with folks in Chicago and Miami and Ohio and San Antonio, Texas, to support them to build organizations in their own communities uh, was really powerful. And in turn, um, it gave me a bunch of feedback that helped me grow as a leader to understand how to work with people all over this country um, that was incredibly transformative. One, amazing. And two, I want to dig in at the very beginning. You talked about Forward Montana and finding the resources to make it an organization. Can you talk a little bit about for folks who are listening who may be like, oh, I have this thing. I have this drive. I have the people like, where do they even start to find those types of resources? Yeah. So there's a reason that it took two years before we had staff. And that's because the, the first resources that we found were we asked our family and friends for contributions. Mm -hmm. We threw some backyard parties where people gave us five bucks for donated beer and food. Um, and we were spending thousands of dollars and we were giving our own time. 
that was step one. A few years later, we met uh, some some philanthropists who really wanted to make a difference in in the youth voting, youth organizing, and they circulated an RFP. And we went through a really rigorous and exhaustive process with them, I think, competing with 30 organizations throughout the West through a, a real process. And, and three of us were selected. Um, and, and I know other good folks uh, who weren't selected. And that's that's one of the things that, that took from that is one, eyes open for opportunity, two, prepare materials, three, do impactful work no matter what your budget is. If your budget is $3,000 or it's $300,000 or it's $30 million, the question is, how are you using that to make a difference today and to keep building for tomorrow? Um, and I think if you have that mentality, you will find folks who will be willing to invest in the work. And it sounds like you utilized all of that knowledge and skills when you developed the National Voter Registration Day and really led that effort in becoming what what is now a really significant part of the political process as a nonpartisan civic holiday. Can you talk to me a little bit about what motivated you to create that initiative and sort of what impact has it been having thus far on registration and participation? It's one of my favorite stories. And in, in early 2011, we were we weren't talking about starting a holiday. We were talking about a problem, which was uh, census data told us that 6 million Americans in 2008 missed that election because they weren't registered to vote because they didn't know how to or they missed a deadline or some other problem with registration. And keep in mind, at this point, I had, I had spent half a decade either with a clipboard in my hand registering voters, supporting other people to go out with clipboards and register voters befriending people who were launching online voter registration systems. Like it felt like everyone I knew personally was somehow trying to encourage people to register to vote. And then 6 million people literally don't have access to that information. We knew that we just didn't have enough people. So we asked ourselves, how do we build something that invites everyone else in so that those of us who are doing this year round aren't carrying the full burden and also aren't falling short? And so we started talking to people who cared, but who also weren't doing this stuff every day. And what we were hearing from them, this is this is some companies, this is some big service providers, this is um, just friends of ours, people who represented influencers or musicians. And what we heard from them was everyone who comes to us wants us to do something big. They want us to make a, a, a month-long commitment. They want us to do a, a full year-long initiative. And so we said, okay, let's build something that's a low barrier to entry, that's really welcoming, that's easy, and that we can build on. And that was where the idea of a day of action came from. And so we went back to those same people and we said, hey, what if we asked you to give us just one day? Basically, all of them said yes. So in that first year, 2012, this is, you know, online voter registration existed in a few states and there were some platforms doing it. We ended up with a thousand partners. We helped about 300,000 Americans register to vote that year. Fast forward 10 years, um, there's thousands more partners in the mix. It's become a, a sort of consistent mobilization day and day of action for folks to do things on. Over 5 million Americans have now uh, used that day to update their voter registration. And I think equally important, it's really helped build a community of folks who aren't, again, the folks doing this every day, but they are the folks who are doing a few things throughout the year who are adding it into their corporate social responsibility calendar. Influencers are saying, you know, let's make sure that we get content up on, on Insta or Snap or TikTok that day. And they're the folks who are reaching people who the rest of us really can't reach. You are meeting folks where they're at, utilizing and leveraging assets of folks who want to do social good. It's a brilliant way of not only engaging the folks that we're trying to get to, but also reaching them again, sort of like where they're at through commercials, through advertising, through digital, through in-person events, right? You're, you're sort of casting a wide net there, which I think is really smart. 
there are plenty of parts of the electoral process that you potentially could have focused on in order to increase participation. Why voter registration specifically? I sometimes jokingly call myself a voter registration truther because I'm I'm obsessed with voter registration. And I think that's because it's it seems so innocuous. Voter registration has been around longer than any American has been alive. It just seems part of the process. Of course, you have to do it. But the real history here is is incredibly pernicious. Voter registration was invented in the 1800s in the United States to limit access to elections. It really was one of the primary tools for enforcement of Jim Crow laws. And again, it's still one of the biggest barriers. We've, we've made huge strides in the last two, three generations on voter registration in the United States. And again, when we were sitting down in 2011, you think about 6 million Americans, that's six times the population of my home state who were disenfranchised for no reason other than they did not know how to navigate this, this piece of law. I grew up in a family where, where my dad was a, a Republican campaign manager on a congressional campaign before I was born. We talked about politics around the dinner table. My parents brought me into the voting booth with them, with them when I was a child. Not everyone has that experience. Not everyone can have that experience, right? Not every family in this country has parents who are eligible to vote or can have a work schedule where it's realistic to bring their kids into the voting booth with them. And civics education has not been the top priority in our schools. So this question of how do we take this systemic barrier, and yes, we should make systemic change for systemic barriers, but in the, in the absence of that, what can we do as individuals, as cultural actors, as educators of our fellow citizens to say in a democracy, the system works when we all have a say, and we are here to say to you, you are invited into our system, you are welcome into our system, we are equals, and we want you to participate, and that's why I'm obsessed with voter registration as a way of of systematically welcoming all of my fellow citizens into this conversation. I was also fortunate to have been taken into the polls at a, at a young age. And, and fast forward to high school, right? Like, you're totally right. Like, civics did not teach us, here's how you participate in it. It's like, here's the history of it. Here's how it came to be. But it wasn't a class of, here's how you register to vote. Here's what you need to know when you go to the polls. Here's how you find information about voting and elections. It was not like sort of how we do it now as soon to be, right, 17, 18-year-old folks are about to register to vote. So there's a whole can of worms we can open up about the public education system. The things that they don't teach are these like basic necessities we need as to do our civic duties. So can you talk to me a little bit about how you then got to scale for National Voter Registration Day? And particularly, like, what was the sort of fundraising or resources that you were able to find, tap into, leverage, utilize to really scale up this what was originally a day of action. You mentioned earlier that we built this intentionally to meet people where they are. And that, I think, was both key to the scale and key to fundraising. I want to unpack that a little bit. That remembering our purpose of the day was set up to bring new partners into the space. And so as a result, every decision we made along the way was informed by that question of, are we bringing new partners in? Are we welcoming them? Are we empowering them? And with the frame of this whole season being around movements um, and my own training as an organizer, this is one of the things that I'm always wondering about is like movements are, I think, social phenomena where where people have entry points in organizations or just on their own to do things that they find empowering and that add into their values in a, in a deeply, deeply large scale way. Organizing, I think, is also the, the process of finding folks and empowering them, empowering them as actors. 
And so we wanted to organize the space. We wanted to help bring new people in. And so anytime there was an idea around National Voter Registration Day that either wasn't centering the idea of empowering new actors or even worse, would do something that we thought would make them feel unwelcome or disempowered, that was an idea that we cut out of the plan. And so what that meant in practice was being really intentional. We started by being inclusive. We, we knew that newcomers to politics get wary of what they see as partisanship. So we started by seeking endorsements from the bipartisan National Association of Secretaries of State, from the National Association of State Election Directors, these large institutions who oversee American elections to indicate that this really is for every eligible voter. Um, Second, we, we thought from the beginning about working in immigrant communities and communities of color. So we started working with service providers around the country um, who, who work in immigrant communities in order to, to say to everyone, again, this is, this is your holiday. This is your event. We had actually a really helpful flag a couple of years later that the, the map of the United States that we had was just the lower 48. We had to add Alaska. We had to add Hawaii. We had to add Puerto Rico. We thought about this as a 50 state, seven territory, D.C., overseas voters. This isn't about the battleground states, right? There's a pressure that happens almost everywhere in political work to be like, what are the places you care about? And what we were saying was we are very intentionally saying we care about everywhere. Um, the push to focus can be really healthy, but the push to focus is a polite version of a push to exclude. And for other programs, that push to exclude is necessary. Um, but for us, it was absolutely the wrong decision. The next thing that we did was think about validation. Humans are, are social creatures. And so we worked hard early. We didn't know everyone we needed to know. Um, but we thought through our networks, we will find almost everyone. And also, before they get in, in bed with us, they're going to want to know who else is part of this process. So we, we got commitments early on. Our goal was let's have at least 100 organizations, including names people have heard of. The League of Women Voters was one of the founding institutions, right? There's a, there's a storied history there. Let's find these institutions that themselves are validators, but let's also be able to note the scale, the breadth, um, and, and use that. Many big institutions are really protective of their brands and don't want to lend them out to startups. Uh, and at the same time, we needed to have people we could credential. And so we built that invitation and permission structure, which was, we want you to do something on this day around voter registration. You don't need to ask us for permission to do anything. All you need to do is commit that you are going to be nonpartisan. And in exchange, we will celebrate, we will support, we will do anything we can to, to support your activation. Um, the advantage from a fundraising side was that massively reduces our budget. We weren't having to pay people to do their things. We weren't having to grant people to do their things. We were simply going to really large institutions and saying, everyone's going to be doing something on this day. Why don't you do something bigger? Um, and then the second thing it let us do was say, we are going to take a, a big idea to scale and we're going to do it efficiently. And we're looking for a couple smart philanthropists who don't want to get credit for every event in the country, but they do want to make sure the whole thing happens. And I think that approach, especially for where we were at that time, which was I had been running organizations with budgets of hundred to $200,000. And this was the first thing I ran that was a more of a million dollar budget. It was eased into that by going in with a really thoughtful, humble budget and plan um, and a clear structure and strategy that we could explain to those donors. The steps they may take a long time, right? But they're very yeah. clear, right? Like understanding who your who your audience is and what values are portraying. For you all, is very much about inclusivity, right? And understanding that being your north star and continuing to center that allowed you to then sort of pitch that to other folks, other validators that then sort of grew the buzz. That then you understood how do I then take this this idea and this this momentum to the specific funders that I that I know I want, right? And who understand what we're doing. And have that really specific ask for them. 
I think is a really helpful and really smart way of thinking about how do you take something to scale in a way that it doesn't mean you have to raise the $30 million, right? But you have to get this in front of the right folks who either have their own resources or want to participate in what you all are doing because you have such a strategic and smart and focused sort of action while being inclusive of all the folks. One of my mentors in politics told me years ago that politics isn't complicated, but that doesn't mean it's easy. And I think that's one of the most insightful short lines about this that I've ever heard, which is this is all a lot of work. This is all a lot of intentionality, not because it's complex, but simply because you have to commit to doing the thing over and over and over again. And so you go and you meet with a hundred organizations to pitch the same program and you do that to accomplish a goal so that you can go to funders and say, look, we have a hundred partners on board, but you can't shortcut that work. You just have to go do it. Yeah. That probably being one of the answers to my next question. But so if some of our listeners are thinking about whether they're in the healthcare space or the gun violence prevention space, they're in the repo space or the LGBTQ rights space, right? They're working on a bunch of different issues. If they're trying to approach funders and they are just at the onset and just starting, what are some tips, advice, things that they should be thinking about or considering as they do that? Every step at the Alliance, I think we tried to incorporate a lens of Will funders care about this, get excited about this, back this, but not as the question of should we do it or not, but rather to understand how to fold it into our plans. And the more important question was always, what is our vision? What is our strategy? What is our plan? And how do we work with funders to help them understand that vision, that strategy, that plan? And I use those three words pretty intentionally. Funders were actually some of the folks who early pushed us to narrow. And they said, why don't you do a voter registration day in seven states? And I was like, you, like if we really are trying to get tech platforms, one, they won't want to hear that it's a narrow state map. But two, they exist all over the place. There's no, there's no benefit to narrowing the map. There's only downside. And having that vision, having that strategy, and having that plan allowed us to push back on funders who were asking us those questions. That vision of we want to register more voters, that strategy of we want to be a place that welcomes new partners, folks who don't do this all the time, and then finally the, the actual actionable plan to make that happen, and that we had that focus on that plan meant that we did say no to a bunch of additional ideas that weren't core to that plan, which also meant that when we went to donors, our budget was a million dollars, not $30 million. And we also could tell them that we were being rigorous, that we were evaluating for every dollar that goes into National Voter Registration Day, we want to assess it on, would that money be better spent on digital ads? Would it be better spent on an army of clipboarders out in the field registering voters? That rigor, even with something that's really hard to measure like National Voter Registration Day, the, the thoughtfulness about we want to think about the trade-offs that you are making as a funder, I think really helped engender trust with the people who did end up backing us that we were thinking about the trade-offs they face, not just our desire to do what we wanted to do. Again, connecting the dots for them, right? Like you're really understanding how does this work with what they're already doing so that they're sort of bought into it from the jump. With National Voter Registration Day, we tried to really think about our audience was these companies, big service providers, influencers, celebrities, artists, all of these folks. And in order to work with them, we had to think about what do they want? What are their interests? How And how do we help them see themselves in a thing that we want them to do. And I think the same question is really important in donor engagement. You can't just go and say, I care about X, therefore you should care about X. That doesn't work anywhere in democracy. It doesn't work in persuasion ads. It doesn't work in, in voter registration and voter turnout. 
It doesn't work in partnership recruitment. It doesn't work in fundraising. It is that idea of like mirrored language, right? Like how are you utilizing language or, or understanding how you are talking about this that they see themselves in it already, right? You're not saying you should be doing this in addition to, but you should be like, you're already in here with us, right? Like you're already included in this, which makes that connection so much easier. Again, an intentional structure, intentional intentional program, internalize that, that folks are, are receiving 100 pitches a week. They face trade-offs, they face questions. And being sympathetic to that, taking a no seriously, genuinely respecting if someone says no, that they mean it. One of my board members back in the day represented a, a small foundation and would just tell me how often she would get pitched by the same person seven times. And every time she would be like, it's not that we don't think you do good work. You're just not a fit for our portfolio. And I'm happy to meet with you again, but the answer is going to remain the same. And they would get upset with her. It was not a good use of their time. It was not a good use of her time. Um, and it would have gone better if they had just taken her seriously. And you have your own experience, right? Having raised resources for organizations or efforts, initiatives you have led. Any other of those pieces of advice, best practices, mistakes you've seen folks make over and over that you could educate our listeners on? I think being clear is is helpful um, and being clear and honest. And that means that if you are looking for resources, being clear that you are looking for resources, looking for money is a thing that donors understand. And it goes much better again if you're willing to accept no as an answer. You will hear no. And one of the things that I used to say with our team um, and that I heard from another mentor is, the only thing better than a fast yes is a fast no, because you can put your energy elsewhere. And the reason why funders don't provide fast no's is because of the reaction they get from organizations. And organizations treat fast no's as insults when they are not. They are signs of respect. They are signs that they respect your time, your energy, and even your program. Um, and they respect it enough to let you know that they are not in a position for whatever reason to be supportive of it. And they want to let you go find the support you need somewhere else. I think bringing that honesty to disagreement. And again, you should build relationships with your funders. You should respect them as, as thought partners. Funders pushed us early in National Voter Registration Day to narrow our map. We pushed them back that we didn't think we should do that. We gave them our honest analysis of why. Some of them disagreed and did not support the project. That was okay. Others said, that makes sense. They supported the project. They were better partners in the work because they understood our strategy, because we had had honest conversations with them. I should also note, some of the funders got it from the very beginning. We didn't have to educate all of them. I don't want to indicate that um, I, I knew more than the people who supported my work. Many of them, Many of them gave incredibly helpful insights, and not just about fundraising, about program, about partnerships, about who we should be working with, um, about ways to structure things. That ability to build genuine relationship that's just the thing that we should all be building in our work. It's about, again, to your point, mirrored language. Um, but it's also about like really moving ourselves to value and, and honor um, the contributions of our partners, whether they are grassroots partners, business partners, philanthropic partners. One of my other mentors in this work always said to me, don't raise money from people you don't like. Don't work with people you don't like. Don't do it. Don't make yourself do it. Don't subject yourself to that. Don't subject them to that. Build with people you like, respect, and want to spend time with. In doing some fundraising training, as I do with groups and organizations and campaigns and other folks, one of the things that always comes up that I think particularly 
folks who are newly to fundraising or new executive directors is the like, I need the resources to get the work done. And therefore, I need to chase this money that may sort of take us on a little bit of a tangent away from our our North Star. Can you talk a little bit about that sort of balancing those two things? This is, again, where we would run the stress test on will funders back this work. And really what, what we meant by this and how I should have phrased it is, will funders who we know and have a relationship with, we get excited enough about this, that they will support this at this level, which is also a way of saying, when we ran Ford Montana, we ran it for years with a budget of a few thousand dollars. And then we ran it for a few years with a budget of $100,000. And it is now a budget of $1.2 million. The alliance has grown by leaps and bounds. National Voter Registration Day's budget actually hasn't grown by very much. And it hasn't grown by very much because it hasn't had to. And I think this is the question for folks to reflect on is not how do I get the biggest pile of money I can get? But both one, how much money do I really need to make an impact? And on the flip side, how much impact can I make with more limited resources and to focus on the work um, and to keep demonstrating the value of the work and to build those relationships with funders and the reputation as an honest broker, a thoughtful broker, someone who's doing the work for the right reasons, um, because that's where I've seen funding follow is, is when you build that reputation. And, and, and I say all that as someone who, when I was running a grassroots organization, I thought we were always underfunded. I thought my network was always underfunded. I think a lot of work in this country is and remains underfunded and also internalizing for myself realistic goals and standards was part of my own version of self-care. I don't especially like the term self-care, but setting myself up with reasonable expectations for myself was part of how I protected myself at work to define success appropriately rather than setting ambitious budgets that I could never hit. How's that for some real talk? I was going to say, we do have the self-care question throughout the other episodes, and I had not thought about it in this way, but you're right, right? Like this idea of raising these resources to get the work done can be extremely stressful and extreme pressure on the folks, whether you're the executive director, the development director, right? Like the person who is bringing in the resources. And how do you understand how to do that in a way that gives yourself that like you're you're doing a good job the work is getting done we, we are raising enough resources and setting yourself up to expectations that are reasonable and can be met um, right. that don't sort of drive you up a wall it's the same as as program things don't put it on yourself that your team is going to register 10 million voters next year also don't say i'm going to write a budget that's 100 million dollars and for some people a 100 million dollar budget is a 10 million dollar budget and for some people like like the dream budget the out of reach budget might be 150,000 dollars uh, when i started forward montana i didn't know how to raise 150,000 dollars that's okay you don't need to set unreasonable goals and doing so is is actually counterproductive to your mental health to your institution figure out the next step go for the next step build win some stuff keep going yeah. And if you build it, they will come. Any movements in the recent years? Anytime that you're taking... we're quoting Field of Dreams, I'm here for it. I appreciate that. <laughs> Any movements in recent years that you're taking inspiration from or, or lessons that you're drawing from? And, and how have funders either changed over time or are fitting into the current reality? I love this question, the inspiration part. I think if we're not looking around and finding inspiration in a bunch of places, it's it's a sign of a need to step back. Um, there are inspiring things happening all the time in this country and on this planet. And my favorite example of recent years is the nationwide movement to restore voting rights to Americans coming out of prison. 
the really prominent example of this and the one that was transformative for me is Amendment 4 in Florida and doesn't need leadership that I think has the hallmarks of what is happening all over the country, but also on such a big scale and at a time where many people, including myself, were skeptical of the ability of this movement to take hold. It's a really unique fight in, in voting world. It was like Amendment 4. Desmond built that as a, as a campaign really centered in communities of people who have been personally affected either because they have been incarcerated or because family members have been incarcerated. These are people who have committed crimes, have been convicted of crimes, um, but who have also served their prison sentences, have, have done their time. And it's a question really for the rest of us of how do we believe in atonement? How do we believe in forgiveness? And again, to some of the stuff I talked about earlier, how do we believe in citizenship? And how do we welcome someone as as a citizen in our society, as a neighbor, as a coworker, as a um, fellow congregate, as a person who's going to be hanging out at the park if we say you don't deserve a say in our society? Um, what signal does that send? And I think the signal instead, and this is actually a thing that we see repeatedly in data, is that if we say, we say you did something, you also... You have, you have atoned for it. You have redeemed yourself. And we are going to place trust in you once again, is that that sends a very different signal. And it does signal that people are welcome. It does signal that, that people feel welcome back in the community and recidivism rates go down. So there's this giant community benefit, but there's also a very specific benefit to this community. And Desmond always put them at the heart of it. And as various partners and especially outsiders um, to that community, especially wanted to turn this into sometimes a left versus right thing or a thing that, that is all about race. If folks know Desmond Mead, they probably already know he's a black man, but Amendment 4 had a number of white leaders um, and, and Florida Rights Restoration Campaign had a number of, of white leaders. And, and Desmond built that so intentionally from the beginning saying, this should be every community in Florida. This is across race lines, this is regardless of age, religion, region, um, socioeconomic status, there are people from every background in Florida who are affected. And if you know Desmond and you talk to Desmond in public and private behind closed doors, one-on-one -on -one in a group setting, that's what he says everywhere. That's not a message. That is Desmond. It stands out to me because Florida, you have to get 60% of the vote for a constitutional amendment like this. And when I first heard Desmond speak, I was like, this is a really beautiful idea. And I don't know how you get 60% of the vote for this in Florida, much less how you fundraise, to your point. How do you find the philanthropic money to do that? And again, knowing how many people at times were like, oh, Desmond, you should do this, but you should you should register as a Democrat once you get voting rights. You should, you should do all these things, right? We go back to that thing. Everyone is telling Desmond what to do rather than listening to Desmond. And Desmond wrote the playbook. I didn't have faith in the playbook. This is why Desmond is a MacArthur genius and I'm not. He built that community. He stood strong against the pressure from so many people to build the campaign in a different way. And he trusted in his strategy, his vision, his plan, and he won. And he inspired a bunch of other people around the country whose stories are like Desmond's, who they, they committed a crime. They went to prison, they got out. And they are saying, we are Americans, we are equal citizens, we wanna have a voice in our system. And they're fighting to make it happen. Um, and they've won a bunch of fights and there's a bunch more coming down the pike. And that's definitely like the biggest one lately where I'm just like, trust the people who are affected, not just in a, is it the morally right thing to do, but in a, if you want to win, you center the people who most want to win to be the leaders and the decision makers and the strategists because they care more about victory than you do. And you trust them and you empower them and you work with them. What a beautiful, beautiful example of what we've just been talking about. I mean, big, huge shout out to Desmond. He, I mean, just a, again, yeah, right, a genius and such an amazing steward of 
that campaign, the partners, the resources, the trust, the relationships, like all of those things that he built because he understood his audience and knew what the North Star was. He knew how to get validators to ensure that he was able to stand up against those pressures, right? He understood the type of funders that he needed to back that initiative to get it to the scale that it needed to be in order to win, right? Like he did the vision strategy plan. He implemented all those pieces in such a brilliant and beautiful way while centering those folks and ensuring that those folks were at every decision-making table. I am also very inspired by that and, and the ability to engage with funders in a very different or hopefully new, new way. That campaign was expensive and under Desmond's leadership that was that was so centered in community and values and principle, he did not move to meet philanthropy. He moved philanthropy to meet him, his need and his people. And and, and, and I think this also speaks to, again, I, I don't know anyone who doesn't get frustrated with philanthropy. And I think that is a great case study of how philanthropy can be so responsive to strong leadership from a nonprofit. He built it and they came. What are some favorite books, podcasts, TV shows, movies that you're uh, digging right now that you would recommend to our listeners? Well, I rewatched Furious 7 last night, so I will spare you movie recommendations because I, I only watch trash, basically. We love it. Two books I've been meditating on lately. One is uh, I've Got the Light of Freedom. It's a history of the Mississippi Freedom Movement in the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, which is this era of living memory, but it has all of these lessons about relationships, about tensions that arise over strategy and credit and funding. Like it alternates between between inspiring and and just gut wrenching. The history of the Mississippi struggle is unreal, and I and I think it's important for really all Americans to spend time thinking about the debt that we owe for our current the current strong democracy we have, the current basically strong democracy we have, thanks to the civil rights freedom fighters of the 50s and 60s, mostly black Southerners, not exclusively, but mostly, mostly um, black folks from the South. And, and I don't know any other book that centers as many local leaders and organizers and regular folks as that book. There may be better ones. That's the one I know and love. I'm a huge believer in fiction as a way of, of stepping back from this stuff. Uh, recent novel, uh, When We Cease to Understand the World, which is a partly true, partially uh, fictionalized account of six different mathematicians and physicists, very different, whose work gave them really deep insight into the underlying structures of the universe and who all either got like terribly ill or lost their minds. And I talk a lot about trying to meet people where they are. And it is like, I think, I think understanding people and trying to understand people is really important. Um, and I think the book is a meditation on the limits of our understanding. And one of the things that I try to remember is that there are times when I can't understand and I have to trust. And those are actually different things. And, and I don't need to understand someone to trust them. Um, and sometimes I need to let go of my own desire to understand. So that's the, the final thought on books I'll leave you with. <laughs> I appreciate it. I love this idea of not, we're not reading books, we're meditating on books because you really should be actually absorbing and learning. But lastly, how can folks get in contact with you, the work that you're doing, National Voter Registration Day? Tell us all the things. If anyone wants to talk about uh, the Fast and Furious saga, reachable at impactual.com. Um, I'm also, uh, despite everything, still active on Twitter. MattSinger7 is my handle. So if you want to get in contact with Matt, by all means, we encourage it. Thank you, Matt, for being with us. And we will be right back. And we're back. So, Martine, you had that conversation. Tell me what jumped out to you. 
Matt was great and I think had, as you all heard, a diverse sort of background in both the organizational space as somebody who advised folks, but also in building, right, like National Voter Registration Day as a standalone entity, had some sort of hands-on personal experience dealing with donors and capacity and understanding how to get his impact resourced. And I think what was important is, right, the idea of you have to start somewhere, right? Like you might be listening to this podcast being like, I have an issue that I'm really excited about that I want to get involved with, but I have no idea where to start. Well, you do. You have a network of humans, you know, you have friends and family and community that you have been building, I would imagine, right, in this space in your neighborhood. And that's where you start, right? Like you start by organizing those folks, you start by asking them, you start by understanding sort of, are they interested in the same issue and topic? So I think this idea of you have to have $100,000 at the ready to be able to jump in is a myth, right? And so I think him sort of breaking that down of, even if the somewhere you start is small, it's still going to make impact. And to go into my second thing, right, is regardless of what you do, and no matter the budget that you have, do something that you know is going to be impactful at your local level, at your state level, federally, globally, right, whatever it may be. Do something that you know is going to make a difference and is going to make people's lives better. And as Joe mentioned earlier, if you have a very clear strategy and plan that you're presenting to folks who are giving out grants, to big funders, to small funders, to individual donors, whoever it may be, right, your community, if you're able to articulate that clear strategy, the plan, the impact it's going to make, the money will come. And so even if you're starting small, no matter the size of the budget, if you were doing good work and you were able to show people the good work that is going to come as a result of that, that money will start to flow in. The mission can help you raise money as long as the mission is clear. If the mission is not clear and you're not clear what you're raising money for or your board's not clear what you're raising money for. <laughs> we have for, a completely well, different problem. <laughs> yeah, you have a different problem. And so you have to make sure that you get that buy-in, that everyone agrees, that they know what that is. And if that's clear, then the money will come, right? Know your audience. Understand who you're talking to. You're going to have different audiences that you're tailoring your pitch towards, but understand what that message is and make sure you're really focused on explaining, you know, to your audience. And then understand not everybody's going to give. This is not going to be a priority for everybody. And it's okay to accept no and move on. Don't waste time you know, around the nose, I always think the nose are a gift, right? And then focus on the yeses and then make sure that you're doubling down on those yeses. Once people do buy into your mission and your movement and give you money, ask for more. I think what often happens is people say, well, thank you. And then don't go back enough and don't engage and get folks involved. If you're getting donations above $1,000 for an organization, those are potential board members. Those are people that can be holding events for you. Make sure you're doing that. And again, even if you're getting donations of $50, but I do it all the time and I'm a recurring donor, right? Don't like not communicate with me, engage with me, understand why, and see if there are other ways to get me involved. Those consistent donors can really be inspirational to your organization. You have to find that inspiration wherever you can, use their stories, get people involved. There is gold in those donations, both literally and figuratively. And, you know, those long-term donors start with short-term donors. Don't focus too much on corporations. Really think about how you're making your mission current 
right? How it is current to what is going on so you can keep people involved. Is that enough, Martine? I could go on. <laughs> no, those are really, really great, right? And I'll reiterate what I said earlier, right? Is how are you making sure that you are weaving in the work that you're doing to what is front of mind and in the political environment and the social environment, right? Whatever it may be, there is some way that your issue connects to likely what is at the forefront of people's minds, right? I think we've used this example before, but right when COVID happened, there were a lot of other important issues still happening. And organizations had to pivot to figure out how does gun violence connect to COVID and the ways in which people said, well, if people are finding themselves at home, depression is leading to suicide, there are firearms in the home and children can then have more access to them because they're not at school, right? But they were able to connect the topic at hand to what was at the forefront of the minds of their audiences, their voters, their constituents. And so I think continuing to think about that will also allow you to then access those resources, access those folks, access that money when the audience you're talking to mind might be on some different topic or different issue. We're in a changing world. Movements and priorities change, but you have to keep focus and you have to get people to engage in different ways. And the creativity around fundraising should be a positive, not a negative, and you have to utilize that. And again, this is why it was so great to have, you know, Matt on the show. He really brings a wealth of experience about developing a mission and using that mission to grow a movement. And that is super powerful. And practice, 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 right? If you're still afraid about fundraising, you're never going to get better at it unless you practice it. So thanks for tuning into this week's episode. If you have any questions or comments about movement building through fundraising, check out our website at thecampaignworkshop.com. We'll make sure we have the information about this episode in our show notes. And be sure and like, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Stay tuned for next week's episode. Until next time, this is Martin Diego Garcia and Joe Fold breaking down how to win a campaign. How to win a campaign is Joe Fold, Martin Diego Garcia, Elizabeth Rowe, Phoebe Retta, Evan Wilkerson, and Vienna O'Brien. Music by Daniel Pinto. Audio editing by Christopher Lang. Special thanks to the team at the Campaign Workshop. Please review, like, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.